The business of culture, the culture of business, entrepreneurs, creatives, markets, media, policy, small business. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. That terminal flipping around and giving you that option to tip, everybody is tipping. And not only are you tipping, you're tipping before you even get the service. What does that tip even mean when I'm giving you a tip before I've even served you? What, what am I doing at that point? So we know that to in a sense, it's obligatory. We went back to our staff, we went to our customers and said, look, let, let's end this charade. Let's understand you were giving that money anyway, whether you got good or bad service. Our staff can get that money through their paycheck and we can just raise prices 20% and it's the same thing. The story of how a coffee shop owner learned to counter inflation and the great resignation by ditching tips and propelling baristas onto the partnership track. Bold, complex notes await. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. A shout out to our listeners on WVTF, Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can message me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me is Eric Spivak, the chief coffee peddler, he calls himself, owner, founder of Alchemy Coffee in downtown Richmond. The cafe is eight years old. The famous mobile trailer is 10 years old. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Excited to be here. I got to tell you, I walked in there once. You can have, you practically have Bunsen burners and beakers everywhere. It's very high concept. And I got laughed out of the place simply for asking for skim milk and Splenda. They're like, <laughs> you rube. Once, Eric, you actually took out an iPad with a probe and measured the solids and tannins in my cup and charted that all for me. It's pretty high concept, higher end. And and I have to wonder how that all fared during this pandemic. Well, during the pandemic early on, um, you know, we were tied to kind of whatever VCU was doing. So being on the VCU campus, um, we followed suit. And when VCU closed the school, closed the campus, we followed suit. You know, during that time, we were completely closed starting, I want to say April, through July. Wow. Um, and that aligned really with what VCU was doing at that time. I ask everybody, like, did you immediately look to your wife and everybody the night that it was announced and the NBA was postponing and everything like, okay, we're covered. We have business interruption insurance. What was the thought process? Well, early it was, let's stay ahead of it. So we've typically tried to be relatively progressive. So when it was only a few places that were doing takeout only or were masking, et cetera, et cetera. We always tried to be on the forefront of it, protecting staff, protecting customers, and knowing that whatever we did during those first initial weeks in terms of business wouldn't compare as much as to the philosophy and the mindset that we had in terms of how we would get through it. So we weren't afraid to kind of be ahead of that when people were still in person, et cetera. So I think we were one of the first to say, hey, we're takeout only, or we're doing this. We're Even before that, it was... Don't bring in your mug. Everything's paper. No surrender. You know, the changes we made early, it's hard to even remember and go back to those details because everything was changing every day. You did something, then you see what somebody else was doing. You're reading something and you're deciding, okay, tomorrow we're going to do this. Or even today, like, stop the ceramic wear, put it all away. We're all paper now. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we were 
prior to COVID, there was a time where people cared about the environment <laughs> and that mattered. I think COVID kind of threw that out the window to a degree in terms of the packaging and the supplies. Maybe we're ready to get back to that point. But I remember at that point being struck by this idea of, you know, hey, we're, didn't we care about waste? I mean, we were trying to push people to use ceramic wear and, and take drinks. Well, how did you contort for personal protective equipment? Like in those initial days, we didn't know if this was airborne. We were slathering Purell on everything. Remember carryout packages? We were actually washing them down with Purell. Yeah, I mean, we we did it all. We put up the protective shield. We had masks. We distant. Sure. Um, so we kind of took all those approaches. I do think early on, I remember reading about it not being surface transmission. And despite that, a lot of places worrying about that when I felt like that was no longer a concern, that distance and time and masking mattered most. And the you know, then it got into the type of mask, right? Because early on, you couldn't get the mask that everybody wanted. So we were going to medical supply shops to find the right mask, et cetera. Um, but for the most part, we were closed during that time. You know, we, we came back and reopened in August. We had done some trailer events. Uh, and a lot of those trailer events were geared around supporting frontline workers because the only things that were open at that time were hospitals. And, and other other places like that. And we were... So it was a write-off period. It was not a profit center period. I mean, you were just trying to keep the brand alive and the workers nominally employed? Well, they were immediately eligible for unemployment and the enhanced unemployment. And they knew about that quickly. And that's also something that with time on your hands, with us not running the operation, I could spend more time thinking about what my staff needed. So... You know, I helped enable and make sure everybody had access to that. The enhanced unemployment kept them, you know, in the game, if you will, in terms of getting paid. So I didn't have labor. Uh, VCU was amenable to not having rent early on because they had closed the campus. So, you know, it made sense that if you close the entire environment that I operate within and, and it's outside of my hands that, that we weren't paying rent. Um, we were starting to apply for PPP, things like that. But we actually didn't go the PPP route. We went the ERTC route, which is, the less common. So the employee retention credit, um, it was actually a much better deal. PPP had had things to jump through. You had to find a local lender. We actually received PPP and gave it back the same day. We were so it was so new that my banker didn't even know you could give the money back. We gave the money back before we even got. How did you find out about ERTC? Um, it was uh, Kevin with uh, who's now with the Jasper. He is fellow restaurateur. Yeah, fellow restaurateur. Um, you know, he's one of those guys that in the restaurant industry, you've got different subsets of, of types. And he he's the financial type. He's the one that knows all the nitty gritty in terms of how things should work financially. Great advisor, shares a lot of information publicly. And I think I'd come across it and I knew to talk to him. And when I asked him about it, I'm like, hey, what are you doing? What are you thinking here? And he's like, ERTC all the way. And this was basically whatever you paid out in payroll, you were allowed to get back money plus some. So normally employers pay our payroll tax. Instead of paying the tax, now they paid you almost an equivalent of what you would have paid. And it was percentage based based on what you paid out in payroll. So when you pay out payroll on a normal basis, they gave you back a percent of that up to a certain dollar threshold per employee, gross dollar amount, et cetera. 
but there were no hoops to jump through. It was basically like, hey, you pay your people, you get money back. And we were able to continue that. I think ERTC ran for 18 months. So that was, but at the time that it launched, you had to choose ERTC or PPP. You could not get both. First I ever heard of ERTC, and I consider myself fairly well informed. And that was the thing. There was very little press on it. Mm -hmm. All the attention went to PPP. And a lot of the attention went to the lack of access to it. It was, which bank's offering it? Can you get in? Has it expired? Is the is it out of money? Did we miss the window for applying? There was this you know constant attention towards what wasn't available, and when it was available, everybody's attention went towards it. ERTC was just chill in the background. Fill out an IRS form, you do your normal quarterly payroll, and they send you back money for it. It took a while to get it. You know, IRS wasn't in the office. They said, "Hey, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming." And then, of course, the summer of George Floyd with the monuments going down and the protests and certain stores even getting damaged and torched. I remember near that Starbucks at the corner of the boulevard. I mean, there were people getting plyboard for their businesses. Um, it was brutally hard. Not only were you not getting traffic, but it was a summer of tumult in the city. The monuments went down. People were protesting. Mm -hmm. Students were restive. Uh, people out of work. The unemployment rate briefly touched 16, 17 percent. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we we were right in the in the thick of it. We were fortunate uh, to not be touched uh, directly by any of the protests in terms of the damage. One of our neighbors, Balanced Bicycles, who was a great community partner, they got hit pretty hard, and they weren't able to work through it based on you know what was taken from them. And in that sense, you know, we were just fortunate that not many people that are looking to break into somewhere and steal something know what to do with a twenty thousand dollar espresso machine. They just they don't have a 240-volt hookup at their house. They don't have the right <laughs> water filtration system. And it's just not something you think about, you know, snatch and grabbing. So uh, I think we were fortunate in that sense. I don't think we were spared for any other reason besides that. Mm. Now, one of the indicator species, I study Starbucks quite a bit, as I'm sure you do, right? Mm -hmm. This is a, It should be a Dow component. I mean, McDonald's is in the Dow 30. I think Starbucks is very indicative of the economy. They've been very forward in terms of app charging, mobile payments before anybody was using Apple Pay or anything sure. else. And they contorted very quickly. If you remember, Starbucks was the one, this is an A caliber tenant. It's it's oftentimes, if not the anchor for commercial properties, it's the one whose rent is the most dependable and peerless. They came out on a kind of a rent strike with landlords and said, we're going to demand a haircut. And two, they immediately closed down stores without drive throughs They quickly, almost overnight, moved to a drive through centric app-centric carry-out business. How many, I mean, did you take cues from them? Yeah, we always look at Starbucks as a leader from a marketing standpoint. We don't look at Starbucks as parameters of how to brew coffee. We look at them as how do we present the coffee to our audience? How do we market it? How do we price it? We never want to be lower than Starbucks pricing. Um, we have better quality than, than what they provide. Uh, so we use those parameters, but we're always trying to look at what they're doing. And fortunately, their apps are so sophisticated that we can actually use and play around with it and see how is it working? What does it do for this? What does it do for that? So we have, you know, I have the app downloaded and I'm constantly looking at it to see they innovate a lot. Yeah. Both on the loyalty side and the mobile ordering side. And we follow that and we've em tried to emulate that. On the mobile side, I definitely noticed that. I remember 10 years ago when I opened, my first thought in terms of format was drive through. And I looked at, there was a spot on Broad Street. I had done all the traffic studies, 
It was at West Broad and um, not the old Arby's that they took over. No, yeah, it's where sure. Estes um, Truck. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, I can't remember the cross street. It is the highest volume traffic area in the city because people coming east in the morning from the west end by Hamilton and Malvern. Yeah, hey, there it is exactly. And that entrance onto the expressway is what gets everybody. If right. you put a drive-through there in the city, that would be the most successful drive-through. And I, early on, contacted Estes. They weren't using their full parking lot. I was like, hey, what if I just park my trailer there? Somebody could pull in, come through. We could serve them as a, as a drive-through format. And they multiple times re- refused our offers. And this was contrary to the formats that I knew and the relationships I knew when I lived in the Northwest. In Seattle, Portland, you see mobile trailers, shacks on the corners of high-volume traffic areas. and they develop this kind of copacetic relationship with the landlord to say you will draw in people. A lot of times it's a gas station and we'll bring greater traffic to to your property. You let us park here, even supply water and a little bit of storage. And, you know, it's a win-win. Um, when we tried that approach here, it was too foreign and nobody was receptive. I got to ask you that because I was I was peeking you back then. I mean, for the Starbucks that closed and the people were complaining that their thoroughfare became a coffee desert mm-hmm. in the mornings, you you had an ability. The, the food trucks had another moment. They had a great moment. You you know, I call it portable alpha. You could take your mobile trailer and go anywhere to a festival. It's outside when we were doing things overwhelmingly outdoors. Was that something you considered expanding? I mean, we expanded the realm the the variety of things that we were doing. You know, we were showing up to uh, neighborhood gatherings that in the past wouldn't have been a thing. Uh, we were doing, like I said, supporting frontline workers. So we were doing more of that. Uh, one of the things that we depend on that vanished immediately uh, was the film industry. So one thing people may not realize is how robust the Virginia film industry is. We do a lot of uh, catering for them. We've pretty much been on on the scene of every TV and movie shoot that's been shot uh, in the area for the last eight years. Uh, Though I heard Steven Spielberg suggested Lamplighter for Lincoln. So we were we were after lamp we were after um, Lincoln. Uh-huh. So we came in right after that. Um, and I think was it was it Clay with Blackhand? I think they did Lincoln. Yeah. And I I want you know I don't know any numbers, but you know rumor is they they made a killing on that. Uh, we were right after that. So we missed the Lincoln shoot, but everything post Lincoln, we were kind of involved with. Um, but the film industry was the most proactive, the most um, aggressive in terms of protecting workers. And they went away the quickest. Even today, as we think about all these restrictions going away, when we're on set, we're, our staff is tested with rapid tests. They're still wearing masks. Um, it's one of the last vestiges of, of what we saw during the height of COVID. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. My guest in studio, a rare in-studio appearance, is Eric Spivak. He's founder of Alchemy Coffee, which operates a cafe in downtown Richmond, an old kind of a it's a VCU building that was a train depot back in the Gilded Age, and a well-known mobile coffee trailer. That's where you got your start a decade ago. I want to get into, before we get into how you've evolve the business and some of the risks and dares that you're taking now. Take me into some of the evergreen aspects. Whenever I talk to a barista or a coffee shop owner, I always actually imagine me, imagine sitting next to Robin Farzad at a wedding or a bar mitzvah. I always say like, what is the one thing I need to know? Like the old trope about the sushi chef will tell you never get sushi on a Sunday night (laughs) or somebody will tell you don't go into an ER on this or don't fly fly a discount airline from Florida on Monday, Monday morning. I always want to know, I ask coffee people and baristas and owners, what is your profit driver? What is the one thing you would sell a ton of 
that would make your heart sing? Um, that we currently do, or you're saying? I mean, is it drip coffee? Is it the more labor intensive? Foam stuff, latte stuff, artistry. It, 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 I, I look at a gigantic sack of quality beans right. and I'm thinking, what is the most profitable way to distill this down for consumers? You know, I I don't think of it as on a per cup basis. For me, where I want to go is I want to move people toward an environment where they have greater understanding of the product such that they're more likely to come back to us. And here's what I mean by that. Let's say you start with us not knowing much about coffee. Somebody just tells you that, you know, we do coffee well and you're the average drip coffee customer. You're in and out, put a bunch of milk in it. When you come in and you have that coffee that way, you won't have an appreciation for how much better our coffee is. We need to adjust your behavior in order to get you first to taste the coffee. So we'll switch you over. We'll try to dissuade you from trying it with milk in it. We'll say, you know, try it without the milk first. Then you can always add the milk later. You might be surprised at how you like it. When we start moving in that realm, then it becomes, well, how about a single cup pour over? Maybe this morning you have five minutes to spare and you can wait for us to brew a coffee of your choosing. The drip coffee is already chosen for you. It's a great product, but maybe you're in the mood for a, a natural coffee from Ethiopia. Maybe you're in the mood for a, a washed coffee from Guatemala. And we can look at the tasting notes. You can start to delineate between those. As I move you towards something that is more in our core competency that others don't do as well, now we create this loyalty and affinity towards our brand and what we do that you're coming back. So it's not really in the single cup per se. I'm, I'm not trying to switch you. It's the lifetime value of the customer. Right. It's the return and appearance. When I think about what we do, how much better we do espresso, how much better we do a pour over, even with our iced coffee options, our Yama Tower, um, the slow drip. The slow drip thing, which looks like something out of Breaking Bad. It's definitely impressive. You know, the Japanese are um, wonderful coffee, uh, avid coffee people, but also love aesthetic and they love glass. And so the Yama Tower is kind of that convergence of all of it, their obsession with coffee, with glass and with aesthetic. And it's a beautiful product that is functionally well-made too. There's a reason why it drips at the rate it does, the why the coil is there, and it produces great coffee that objectively anybody that comes in with a lot of coffee background or without immediately tastes a difference. And we enjoy sampling out to people that would never imagine ordering it. And you see it in their eyes. You can see the visceral reaction to something like that. So when we move people toward drinks like that, that they can't experience somewhere else, you know, that's where we're winning. There's a tremendous amount of consternation at Starbucks, which is still kind of the mass market benchmark, is when they did convert into the drive through centric and mobile app stores. It's become quite, I won't say a sweatshop, but an operations challenge. You have your headset on. You're taking a constant deluge of orders from the drive through You pass by some of these drive throughs You talk about the areas near interstates and everything, and they sometimes there are 20 cars sure. at 7, 7.30, and the, the property owner didn't kind of prepare for that. I had a Starbucks that added a drive through belatedly. Like, I mean, you go to the ones on Huguenot and other places, and it's a real problem. You, it blocks the parking spaces, but I feel for the workers, the baristas, because in addition to the vestigial Cafe customers you have that are still walking up with their frap orders and everything, you know, sub this, do this, extra this, pump of this. You have to mind the headset for the drive through and the app orders. And to say nothing of, I think, the, the gig workers that are showing up to do deliveries, right? It's become a whole challenge for the worker. And that's why you're seeing this, this move to kind of rest back, not just benefits, but rights from the Starbucks workers, a whole unionization push. 
Yeah, I think Starbucks has definitely moved towards a, a production model, right? When, when you think about, you know, if you're, if you're sitting in their headquarters considering how do you increase volume, it is on the incremental operation side they're going to do it. It's not through customer service. It's not through the product per se. It's really about how can you automate it and make it go through quicker. So when you look at the equipment they have, when you look at their formats, I'm sure most of their conversations and thought processes around how do we gain efficiency to put out more product because the demand is there to a degree, the wait time is there. And I think that's probably the overall metric that's driving them these days versus the service experience versus the quality experience. If you think about where they were three, four years ago, there was this consideration of are they pushing into the specialty world? They had launched the, the Clover machine, my man. I love the Clover. Does anybody out there remember it with the squeegee, this piston that would send up European, you know, Ethiopian, Yurk Chafe and everything? And it looked a little labor intensive, but it was the smoothest, low acid cup of coffee ever. I would say it's a poor man's alchemy. And then they wrote down the value of all of these machines, which cost like 20000 25000 a pop. Well, it, it, in, in simplest terms, they bought out Clover. They precluded the independent marketplace from owning Clover machines, and they closed that down to anyone besides them. And Isn't that anti-competitive? I, I I'm sorry. I, I don't know. If <laughs> We're they, getting into I, inside coffee, but I, you know. I, I don't know if that was their intent, but what I would tell you is when they bought it, no one had access to that machine anymore. This was not something that anybody else could buy. So they were buying the exclusive rights but to it was the machine. But it was a solution of yesteryear, pre-pandemic, that could kind of automate something, that could standardize something, that could add something theatric to the walk-up experience. And it's completely a footnote and afterthought right now. Right. Because, I mean, think about what their model is. Their model is the same product in 10,000 plus locations across, you know, across the country. And they need to be able to do it with varying levels of expertise in staff. They can't train the staff to have the coffee or technical knowledge that they need with that many people. So they have to automate where they can. They have to take the people side out of it. You know, 20 years ago, there was a manual nature of what you were doing at Starbucks. Starbucks wasn't that different than what was happening in other specialty coffee places. Right. They have delineated themselves in terms of moving towards that essentially McDonald's model of, you know, the the machine will spit out the soft drink in straight into the cup that the employee doesn't even have to touch it. They're more in that realm now. And Clover was that kind of hybrid of we can make a single cup pour over on demand brewing, but take the employee out of it so that we don't have to rely on the knowledge of the staff worker, the attention of them in order to brew it. They tried launching it. I didn't see it go very far. They stopped it pretty quickly and they never let it back out into the marketplace. Before we go to break, in the realm of cafes writ large, I mean, coffee, bean and tea leaf, Starbucks, you name it. I mean, regional. I don't even know how many chains there are. Dunkin' is a whole different beast. If I were to compare the Dunkin' Donuts of today versus my childhood, you would never get an egg white flatbread, I mean, or a tuna melt or anything. It was a it was a greasy spoon type place for a cop shop and you'd come in and you'd get a dozen and you'd get a, you know, dirty dishwasher cup of coffee. Uh, do they all want to dissuade the dining experience right now, post-pandemic, considering that it's labor-intensive, requires more cleaning, the bathrooms, and labor's hard to come by? I, I don't have a tremendous amount of insight into you know, where they're at. I, I think what you're alluding to is intuitive, but the format matters. I mean, like you said, there's a there's a problem when you see 20 cars in line. So then you have to have more outlets 
to enable people to not avoid that line. So I'm sure there's some balance. You know, when we look at what's happened locally, there are other Starbucks that have opened. There are drive-throughs very close to each other. So they're probably looking at, you know, what is that balance of neighborhood cafe versus drive-through? And I think when you look at drive-throughs, you have to have more of them in a closer proximity to offset the the backups that they may experience hmm. than a cafe may experience. So do you open more stores? Can you get the land for that? You need more workers in more locations versus I imagine that neighborhood cafe has a higher concentration of, of who they're pulling from and may require more staff in that location, but can support more volume. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fullderadio.com. Please subscribe, rave, and recommend us to mom and dad and your cousin and aunt. You can catch me on Virginia Public Radio, Radio IQ, WVTF across the great Commonwealth. We are on social media, across social media at handle Full D Radio, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Heck, I might fire up my Friendster account. Uh, holler if you too would like us on your air. My DMs are always open. If you are just joining us, we are in studio with Eric Spivak. He is the founder, chief coffee peddler of Alchemy, which is in the news. Alchemy Coffee, it's got a cafe in downtown Richmond. It has a very famous mobile coffee trailer that started uh, in a very scrappy and admirable way 10 years ago when Richmond was getting going. And now you're in the news. I'm quoting from Richmond BizSense, Eric. Downtown coffee shop Alchemy plans transition to co-op model. In a bid to combat a tough labor market, the founder of a Richmond coffee shop wants to bring a cooperative ownership model to the business he started a decade ago. You're working on a transition to cooperative ownership of the company. So you're now a kibbutznik. Trying. We're, we're just we're early in the process. Before we get to this, I got to tell you, you were you were on social media and I was going to message you about this several weeks ago. You You put out an ad for workers but said no tips. Now, this has become a point of consternation for a lot of people. I could tell you that there was a bakery downtown that I really wanted to support in the teeth of the pandemic. Things were terrible. I show up there, bought a ton of things in person. It is richly priced. They use sticks of butter in their croissants and everything. And the former owner then turns around the iPad to me and just very loudly and looks straight in the eyes, would you like to leave a tip for staff? Like, how are you going to say no on a you know $60 order and everything and leave a significant tip that defaults to 15, 20%? And this is now called tipflation. We did a piece with Here and Now about it. You came out and advertised that these openings will not have tips. Explain. So coming out of the pandemic, when we were right smack dab in the middle, staff was vaccinated or getting close to being vaccinated, but Customers weren't necessarily because uh, service workers had access early on. People were wearing masks, but not always wearing masks. There was a, a heightened level of danger just to work in service. Staff members had experienced enhanced unemployment, so they had been earning more for not even working during that time. And they come back, and you ask them to come back to, quote unquote, a more normal operation paying them under an antiquated model that had them rely on tips that, understandably, tips are a percent of sales. And during this time, sales were down. So now I'm asking staff to come back and work in an environment where it's more dangerous to work, to earn less money than they were before, coming off the heels of pandemic unemployment where they're making $25 an hour, sitting at home, you know, day trading on uh, whatever platform. Robert was popular, yeah. Uh, so. We looked at that. We, you know, we 
we talked a lot about it and, and I, you know, I said, you know, I can't ask them to do this. So what we said was, look, we will take what your previous earnings were, your previous hourly wage. At that time, we were starting, you know, around $9 an hour. They were earning on average $5 an hour in tips. So call it 14 all in. And we said, we will take you to $15 an hour. We'll raise prices 20% because almost everybody was tipping anyway, right? This notion, as you alluded to, this dynamic of that terminal flipping around and giving you that option to tip, everybody is tipping. And not only are you tipping, you're tipping before you even get the service. What does that tip even mean when I'm giving you a tip before I've even served you? What, what am I doing at that point? So we know that to in a sense, it's obligatory. So they, we went back to our staff, we went to our customers and said, look, let, let's end this charade. Let's understand you were giving that money anyway, whether you got good or bad service. Our staff can get that money through their paycheck directly from me, and we can just raise prices 20%, and it's the same thing. Why isn't that standard? Because I look at it as a gigantic diffusion of responsibility. For too long, you can underpay workers and count on kind of this guilt complex or shaming complex. They call it tip shaming now to pick up where the owner doesn't want to make the hard decisions and hike prices or take a hit to margins. You had this realization now, and I I don't think other people have it. Well, I had the realization, but we're definitely swimming upstream. I mean, a majority of our customers relatively silently appreciated it and agreed with the change, as is the case with social media today and the internet. A small, very small minority of extremely vocal individuals wouldn't let it go and would not let us move to this model without them pushing back and pushing back. And at first, their concerns were, you're making this change despite what your employees want, which was not the case. We had had meetings. Everybody raised their hand. Everybody said they wanted to move this way forward. So then we said, okay, easy response. We'll let employees provide personal attestments of, of how they view it and what benefit that has to them. And, and there would range in benefits. We, I had an individual who wanted to get a loan to buy a house. And when he would walk into the bank with his tipped wages, the bank wouldn't consider his tipped wages. He could show them a, a clear history of what he'd been earning. And they say, well, we don't count the tips. Because it fluctuates too much? It's it too doesn't volatile? actually fluctuate. But they say, we can't know that you will get it. I see. When that same employee comes back and says, well, now my employer is giving me everything in my hourly wage. Great. That's your income. So the, the benefits like that are significant. And when our employees provide their testimonials and said it, you know, it calmed the waters to some degree, but it's always lurking beneath. As to why that's the case, the industry of tipping, this practice of tipping, it has horrible beginnings, right? This country continued it when other countries stopped it. And the vestiges date back to the ending of slavery, forced labor practices, all these terrible practices that enabled workers to be underpaid that the U.S. continued with when other countries stopped, right? And this country has a long history of that, right? Slavery in this country continued when European countries had ended it, right? These choices continued to be made, and we live in that environment today. The reasons behind it aren't great. And even today, why people want to tip, to me, doesn't feel great. And what I mean by that is there is a certain badge that a customer presents when they drop the dollar in the tip jar, when they click on the screen. Those that want tipping to continue want that public acknowledgement. And the other thing we don't talk about is 
well, if you're so adamant that my barista should be tipped, are you tipping the cashier at Kroger? Where, where are you making this delineation that the barista is a different level of service than what you're getting at Kroger, right? Who are you to say this person should get it, this shouldn't? And we know why. We know that there is background in having this perception of these lower than jobs mm. that the clerk, the cashier doesn't deserve my money like the barista does. I love my staff. I love my industry. But inherently, my people aren't better people than the clerk at Aldi. There's no reason why one should get that service and one shouldn't when they're both providing good service. By by de facto or de jure, is fifteen dollars become the new nine dollars? I know the statutory minimum wage has not changed in real terms for the longest time. You're now, I mean, you can't really get anybody to show up for an interview without less than fifteen dollars. I'm hearing that anecdotally. Yeah, no, I I don't disagree with that. We, you know, we were there prior. So one thing that our service industry was able to do is provide people a, a higher wage than than other places. Um, that gap is closing and, and not in a bad way, right? I, I don't think the cashier at Kroger should be $8 an hour when a barista is 15 or 20. Is there a higher skill set? Yes. Is there you know more stress? Is there more need for better service at times? But is it double? Right? We also need to delineate of where that is, but the floor is rising. And in Virginia, I think we're at $11 today going to 12 starting in January. So that minimum is up. The federal minimum wage is going to 15 unless something legislatively changes. And the state is on track for that too. And interestingly enough, with a Republican governor, I haven't heard much talk about slowing down the move to $15 an hour within the state. So we seem on track. And from what I've heard, we're going to 12 in January. Wow. So I want you to open up the thought process behind this co-op model here. These uh, many restaurants are kind of at a fork in the road where they decided, you know, we're going to curtail hours. If that doesn't work, we're going to shut down. You've seen a, a tremendous mortality rate coming out of this pandemic. You really opened a lot of eyes by saying, I want to provide a whole new incentive system at a time when it's hard to hire and retain people. I want to turn this into a cooperative ownership model. Tell me about the genesis of it and how it's going. It starts with you know, what we've seen from the economy with inflation, with $15 an hour with my staff a couple of years ago when we started this was great. There were no issues, no concerns. They have had their rent go up. They've had food costs go up. Many things that a lot of us have experienced. On our side, from on the employer side, we've had our costs go up in terms of paper products for dairy. You know, everybody understands the impact that inflation has had. So when my staff comes to me and says, hey, this hourly wage just isn't cutting it. What can we do? Well, within the service industry, there is a model in terms of what percent of sales should go to labor. You know, it's anywhere between 30 and 40%. You can only push that so far and then you are no longer have profit. And we do need to have profit to operate, right? We are not a nonprofit. There has to be money to pay rent, to pay cost of goods. There has to be some left over. Generally, best case scenario, it's 10% left over at the end. Rarely happens. Wow. But any restaurant operator is looking to hit that number. Okay. So we can only push labor costs so high until we have to raise prices. So we've looked at that and we've done that. We've now done that multiple times to keep pace. 
But we can see where this is going and to say we need an alignment so that those that are asking for more money are also tied to the right incentives that say when the business does better, they do better. And my staff in particular has a capability set to run the operation. This is not something I'm proposing out of the blue because I don't know if they can do it. I know they can handle it. They can effectively act as owner operator. They can act as employee owners. So what is a hot, what is the most and the, the best level of compensation I give? Well, I literally give them a percent of the profits so that they're on the line as we make changes and decide how to do things. They're right there with me. Now, time out. It's hard enough. They always say it's like herding cats to keep people in a you know, quick serve or fast casual or fast food operation. The turnover rate has been notoriously high. We clearly see the Starbucks labor contra temps in the news. How do you sit people down? One, assume that they're going to stick around and be more than short-term minded, that this is not a three, four-month gig, that no, I'm going to inculcate ownership culture. Well, in a sense, it's the opposite. I'm going to have people that have the mindset to stick around. Nobody's going to buy in to an employee cooperative that intends to leave three or six months from now. It is going to effectively create more tenure, less turnover, because those that will buy in are looking to be here long term. And we have a number of people in the barista community who want that, who love their craft and are looking and yearning for ways to advance within the industry. And there aren't always opportunities to give them meaning we don't have multiple layers of management. We don't have 18 locations where you can be the general manager or oversee you know, five locations, et cetera. We have barista, manager, and owner. And that's, that's where it stops. So if we can move everybody up the ladder to the ownership level, they're more invested. They are able to put their head down, focus on the craft, and know that all the work they're putting in, they literally reap the benefit of. How does this work for you? Is it like a gradual exit over time? You kind of get reduced in terms of your ownership stake until it's a total happy kibbutz? Yeah, to a degree. I mean, we're, we're going to see where it goes. But if that's how I exit the industry, that I do so with my staff becoming employee owners, then I, I think that's the most graceful way to exit possible, to create something that is sustainable, that lives on. Um, that that whose culture you know maintains itself. So um, I, I would love to see that be the way that that I go. If that is what happens, who knows? You know, we're we're just starting on this journey. Um, but I do know that my staff can do it. I, I think they deserve that opportunity, and it's a way of getting ahead of what these labor shortages are and these you know, rising costs and demands you know from the labor force. We're seeing the move towards unionization. To me, the cooperative model is a higher form of that. And unionization in a small business is misguided, frankly. The idea that that will benefit you, I think unionization makes sense in a larger model. It makes sense in a Starbucks. But generally in smaller operations, there's more dialogue. There's more ability to find common ground between owner and employees. And I think in a smaller operation, unionization builds walls um, and builds unintended uh, breakdowns in communication. But a worker cooperative, to me, overcomes that because everybody's at the table with the same incentive. Are there tax benefits to doing this? I don't think there are tax benefits. I haven't looked in that realm. Um, 
you know, you're converting from a single member to multi-member LLC in a sense. Um, so, so I, you're going to make, create uh, share shares of this business. Yes. I mean, effectively as a sole member, I own a hundred percent of the shares in a sense. I mean, you know, we're not trading on wall street, so we rarely think of it that way, but yeah, effectively you're converting and selling shares of that stake. And so the objective is still to clear something like a 10% margin when all said and done and you divvy it up among the owners. How do you decide? And I know I'm getting into nuts and bolts yeah. and inside baseball, but there's a little bit of the flair of full disclosure. I got to tell you, how do you decide how much gets reinvested back into the business or people who have money, who have rent, who have inflationary pressures want to take it out of the business? Um, that's where the bylaws come into effect. So that structure is TBD. That structure and those parameters will be determined by the employee owners. Um, we have a nonprofit we're working with out of San Francisco. They're grant funded. Um, they've been great to talk to so far. They've guided others through this journey and they will help kind of set that. We also have another coffee shop in town, Afterglow Coffee, who went this realm. They took over for one of the lamplighter operations. This was more employee driven. So the employees got together, decided to, to buy out the owner and continue on that. But they're great people. They uh, are more than happy to to help us through this journey too and, and give guidance because they're a couple years in and they have insight and hindsight to, to help us with that. Hmm. What about expansion capital? I mean, is expansion still on the table? I would think that a, a capitalist like you, a student of economics, a person who pounced on this opportunity a decade ago and saw opportunity and worked with VCU and the various other counterparties would say, wow, I see an industry right now retrenching. I see so many things in flux. This is the time for me to show up and pounce on those corners like you talked about the Estes corner. I mean, now suddenly West Broad has a ton of these high capacity drive throughs Starbucks took over that derelict Arby's not far from you. Uh, these things have become machines, but they've lost the soul. Like you don't really are not really invited to go in and sit down with sure. your laptop at a Starbucks anymore. Yeah. I mean, those, some of those formats are transactional, right? They're about volume. Um, look, if Estes Park, if Estes Trucking wants to reach out and and grant us the opportunity to operate in that platform, we'd gladly, you know. You mean like on the lawn of the funeral home right there? It's it's paved, but setting up the trailer, letting people kind of drive through, we'd jump at that. Another format that we love the idea of is that kind of kiosk model to me around MCV is still one of um, the best environments for that. You see why- Hungry doctors and nurses coming out. And at all times, um, you know, we had great reception. We've tried going out there. Unfortunately, you know, at, for the time being, Aramark has a stranglehold on all kind of VCU business from that standpoint. So we can't open in any uh, VCU or MCV space until that stranglehold is lifted. You get around it to a degree by being on the sidewalks. That's why you see so many uh, food cart operators around MCV because the demand is there, but that's the only place. Watch where you walk because the sidewalks talk. Indeed. It's a Madonna private label effort from the early 80s. But I digress. In the eight minutes or so we have left, I'd like to, you know, I'm going to invoke the 80s again. Back in the day, you'd go to the roller skating rink. I mean, you're a young guy. You might not remember this, but then they'd have free skate, air supply. This is the free skate period where, Eric, you take over. Tell me things that I need to know, like if I'm sitting next to you at a wedding or bar mitzvah on a Sunday night, things that may not be apparent in the shadow and persona of the barista everyday experience. Yeah. I think there are, you know, two things. One, on the coffee side, there's so many things you can do to simply improve your coffee experience, whether it's at home or out at a shop. So we still see people that are surprised by the delineation between 
a, a blended coffee that's roasted darker and a single origin. Um, we continue to, to surprise people with, with tasting notes that they didn't know were apparent or this delineation of coffees from different environments, the, the talk of different varietals. Intuitively, people understand that an organic product like that would have different tasting notes. And, I, and if I compare it to apples, can you tell me the difference between a Honeycrisp and a, and a Fuji or a Granny Smith? People understand those differences, but they still don't perceive that in coffee until you walk them through that or they've had experience with it. So at the simplest, that's usually, you know, if you will, my, my elevator pitch for somebody to jump into third wave coffee and to improve what they're doing. And especially to get away from the Keurig, the, the single serve pods, et cetera. Because when you consider what you're paying for it, what I challenge you with is empty out that pod, weigh the coffee. It's about four to six grams of coffee in there. Think about, there's no magic in there. That four to six grams of coffee can't magically make a hundred ounce coffee. It's still just a certain amount of grounds. There's, there's nothing in there. There's no Acme black hole that suddenly other coffee sprouts out from. But we perceive those machines to be magical that way. And sometimes it's willful ignorance where we say, well, it's just convenient. So when we start to break that down, we can see you know, what's in there. And then think about how much you're paying per pound. It's 40 to $50 a pound. If you're willing to give up 4 to $50 a pound for coffee, man, I could give you some of the best coffees in the world. And within a year, I could set you up with $1,000 equipment and your home that you've paid for through these savings. And that is relatively automated. We do have single serve brewers now that are pretty automated. So you can get all of it if you're willing to you know, open your mind to that. So you know, that's one aspect of you know, where, I, where I go when I open up in that sense. Um, the other side of it is where are we going with tipping? Right. So we understand that during the pandemic, we were over tipping for takeout. Right? We, we, we had money we didn't know what to do with to a degree. Right. We were receiving enhanced unemployment. We were receiving stimulus checks at a time where we couldn't get out. Right. Amazon saw the benefit sure. of this. I don't think that was the intent of the stimulus was to push Amazon sales up. I think some of the stimulus was given too early that should have been held until businesses were reopened so that money could be given out to the community that needed it most. I think that money went, I mean, it's great that it went to savings to a degree, but I don't think all the shopping that happened on Amazon during those early months is really where that money needed to go. And when we think about tipping, people were extremely generous and prideful in terms of what they were giving to people that were working in environments that weren't getting the normal tip rate. But now we're in this world of where, where have we landed? Right? Are we still tipping 20% on takeout? Right? Are we tipping now 25%? We have service fees that have been added. Are, are we tipping on top of the service fee? There's so many questions and uncertainty and social pressure. As you said, no matter what I think, when that terminal turns around and that option is given and people are standing behind me and the barista or the service worker standing in front of me, I'm going to click that tip, whether I told you I was going to or not before, whether I had acted like I wasn't going to click it. I'm going to wind up clicking that tip, whether I want to or not. But it there's it weighs on you long term and that fatigue that you alluded to. So I, I think we're going to we're going to find where we go. I don't know where that is. I think we've taken some of that guesswork out. I'm proud that we present it in a manner today that says I, as the owner, am responsible for paying my employees and paying them a fair wage. and compensating them adequately. And that's part of where the cooperative model comes from. 
But we should get back to that realm of the employer should be paying their employees and should be paying them them sufficiently. And we know there's a labor shortage. So this idea that they're not getting paid enough, they can go find a job somewhere else. So you can, you sh- there should be some trust restored in the service industry that they're getting paid enough because otherwise they'd go work somewhere else because we know there's a shortage. So when we start to get back to that realm and, and that trust, I think we'll find some kind of common ground in terms that maybe places go and push the service fee and eliminate tipping altogether. I know that it's been tried. I know, like I said earlier, we're swimming upstream. Danny Meyer tried it famously years ago and eliminated it. Other places have tried it. It's been two years for us and I'm feeling good that you know it's sustainable. Quickly, what is your go-to cup of coffee preparation? Do you travel around with a French press or an Aero press or a bag of uh, Ethiopian Yurt Cafe? I mean, in, in the morning, it, it's a Cortado. After that, it, it's, you know, pour overs. It's espresso later in the day to kind of keep me going. So it's a variety of drinks. When I'm traveling, if if I need to, yes, it's, it's an AeroPress with a hand grinder and a scale. That's probably the simplest permutation I've got. Eric Spivak, founder, owner, chief coffee peddler of Alchemy, which has its downtown cafe, at VCU and of course it's mobile coffee trailer which is already a decade old sir you are always welcome to come back on this show thank you for being a friend of the show love being here full disclosure special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly this show podcast to NPR Spotify and of course Apple Podcasts the link again is fulldradio.com fulldradio.com please subscribe and rave about us a special shout out to our radio listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station across the great Commonwealth, we are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. The handle is Full D Radio. And you can catch me weekly on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week. Music.